Welcome to the Hand Tools and Techniques Woodworking Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Rosieski, answering your questions and bringing you tips and tricks to help you get the most out of your time in the shop. Have you heard the term hang angle but wonder what it is? Do you wonder about the useful length of frame saws? Does the topic of wood finishes confuse you endlessly? I'll discuss these topics and more today on Hand Tools and Techniques. Hey everyone, welcome back to Hand Tools and Techniques. Thanks for joining me for episode 47 of the show for April 10th, 2019. Before I start today's show, I want to take a minute to thank all of our patrons for your continued support of the show. And thanks to a new patron this week, Michael Marino, for signing up to support the show. Listener support helps to keep this show going, so if you'd like to support the show yourself, just head on over to patreon.com slash brfinewoodworking. If you're already a patron, again, I thank you. And be sure to head over to the Patreon posts page to submit your questions and requests for this month's patron Q&A video that'll be coming out at the end of the month. So with that said, let's get into our questions for this week. Our first one comes from Tim Morris, and he says, We talk about hang angle on saws. Can you elaborate on it? Especially if we want to make new handles for our coarser saws. So, hang angle. Uh, Yeah, we hear it mentioned quite a bit, but it's not very often that it's discussed what it actually is. So, you know, we hear about higher higher hang angles, for smaller saws and lower hang angles for larger saws but what does that actually mean so if you were to draw a line right through the center of your saw handle parallel with the handle uh, with the grip of the handle itself so you draw a line right through the center of that handle if you then draw a line perpendicular to that um, that the handle itself, the grip part of the handle, that line, if you extend that line, at some point that line is going to intersect with the tooth line of the saw. Well, the line, that the, the angle between, the, between that line, that perpendicular line, and the tooth line of the saw, that's your hang angle. The greater that angle is, the more upright the handle is and the more downward pressure you're going to be putting on the teeth. The lower that hang angle is, the more vertical that, um, that, that grip angle is going to be. Um, and the less downward pressure you're going to be putting on the teeth of the saw. But what does that all mean in use? Right. And I think that's the question Tim's getting at, you know, if we want to make new handles for our coarser saws, what does the hang angle angle mean? So if we go back and we look at saws that were made in the 18th century, um, which some people would argue um, was probably the um, the time of, uh, you know, the absolute best in hand tool, um, in hand tool manufacturing. I hate to say manufacturing because um, in some cases, uh, a lot of these tools were still being made by smiths um, and toolmakers who knew, you know, how a tool should work 
and not by a factory who is just trying to sell lots of tools. But we'll use the term anyway for now. Um, but if you look at, at saws from that time, hang angles tended to be quite a bit lower. Um, the, the, the handle itself was a little bit more perpendicular or, or, or vertical um, in terms of the tooth line. And what this meant was that you had less downward force on the teeth, but more force behind the teeth pushing forward. And if you've ever used a saw with a lower hang angle, you'll notice right away a couple of things. First, you tend to have a bit more control with that saw. Um, it's, in my opinion anyway, it's a little bit easier to follow a line with a saw with a lower hang angle. Um, because the, the, with the force, with the, the force of the saw stroke behind the teeth instead of down into the teeth, the saw blade has less tendency to, to want to um, drift. The, as you start to get that lower hang angle, however, the saw becomes a bit less uh, tolerant of dull teeth. So what it means is you're going to find that as your teeth and your saw begin to dull, a saw with a lower hang angle or, or a more vertical grip um, it's going to tend to disengage itself from the cut more readily as the teeth start to become dull. So you're going to probably need to sharpen that saw a little more often and keep the teeth sharper. Now you might think that would be a, uh, a disadvantage of having a lower hang angle on a saw, but the way I see it is it's sort of like, um, you know, using a hand plane or a chisel. When that tool starts to get dull, um, it doesn't perform as well. It doesn't do the job it's intended to do as well. So you can just hit that chisel harder with a bigger mallet, or you can push on it harder. Um, but the job that it's going to do cutting the wood is not going to be um, as nice as if that chisel was nice and sharp. Saws, similarly, are going to perform a lot better, regardless of hang angle, when they are sharper. So um, I don't see the, um, the less tolerance of duller teeth to be a disadvantage of a saw of a lower hang angle. In fact, to me, um, I find it to be an advantage because it lets me know when my saw needs to be sharpened. Uh, it's much easier to tell if my saw is starting to get a little dull. Um, the theory, one theory that I've heard about why hang angles later on in the uh, mid to late 19th century, when, you know, companies like Distin and Atkins, um, and, and, uh, Simmons are, are making saws, um, why the hang angles tend to start to get a little bit higher. The theory, one theory that I've heard is that at this point in time, um, Furniture is being manufactured now in, in factories. It's not really being made by hand by a craftsman. So hand saws are being used less and less by individual craftsmen in workshops. And instead, they're being used more and more or primarily by carpenters in the field, building houses and bridges um, and things of that nature. And those carpenters either didn't have the skill 
or didn't have the ability to be able to sharpen those saws in the field. So by having a saw with a higher hang angle, where it's going to put more downward pressure on the saw teeth, it allowed that saw to be used a little bit longer with slightly duller teeth. So the saw would still continue to cut, even though the teeth were starting to get kind of dull. So that's one theory that I've heard about it. Um, I think it's uh, it's certainly a, a possible theory. Um, I find that I tend to prefer saws with a slightly lower hang angle. Um, again, because I, I tend to have a little bit more control over them. Um, when you, to, to go directly to Tim's question, when he talks about making new handles for coarser saws, if you're talking about a coarse long saw, a long tenon saw, a long rip saw, a long cross cut saw, I definitely recommend going with a, a saw with a lower hang angle. It's going to give you a lot more control um, in terms of cutting a straight line. Uh, my tenon saw, my rip saw, my sash saw, cross cut saw, they all have very low hang angles. And in fact, I've even gone over the years to a lower hang angle on my dovetail saw, which a lot of people, um, if you look at a lot of older dovetail saws, they tend to have higher hang angles. Um, but I tend to prefer a slightly lower hang angle, even on my dovetail saw. So um, I would say, you know, are on the side of a lower hang angle. Um, but the easiest thing to do really is to look for, look through pictures of saw handles and, and handle templates online. There are lots and lots and lots of them. Um, maybe even take some of those different templates, cut them out on, uh, on some cardboard and see what feels right to you. Because, you know, you can talk about the numbers and the actual angle, um, all day long but until you actually get that handle in your hand and feel what it feels like and and kind of understand the angle that it's going to put your wrist at when you're using the saw um, the numbers really don't mean anything once you find a handle that you really like then you may want to measure that hang angle and make a note of it so that if you're going to design your own handles in the future or make different handles then you can replicate that same um, or similar hang angle but if you're not so sure about what angle you should be making the handle at, um, I would say to look for saw handles that are comfortable to you and try to, to mimic that hang, that hang angle. In general, the longer the saw is, the, the more vertical you want that handle to be. Um, and one rule of thumb that I've seen uh, before in the past is that um, if you do draw that line perpendicular through the center of the um, the grip of the saw handle itself that that line should intersect the saw blade about the center of the saw blade and that that's a, a decent hang angle anything um, higher than that is going to be putting too much downward force on the blade um, and you're going to lose a lot of control um, lower than that i find seems to be fine if that perpendicular line is pointing towards more towards the toe of the saw that seems to be okay. The lower hang angles, again, I find to, to have a little bit more control. But if the hang angle is too high, um, the saw tends to want to tip and twist in the cut, um, and that can be a problem. So I would say find a, a handle that you like and mimic the angle on it, um, or if you're going to just design from scratch, or on the side of a, a lower 
hang angle or a handle that's kind of more vertical. And I think you're going to be much happier with the results. Our second question comes from Robert Skidmore. He says, I just listened to your podcast regarding frame saws. Very informative. I had a question about saw size. In your opinion, what would be the maximum width that a 36-inch frame saw could rip effectively versus a 48-inch saw? Since most boards today are no wider than 8 or 10 inches max, is a 48-inch saw really needed? Um, in a one-man shop, for someone using the saw by yourself, I would say no. A 48-inch saw would certainly not be needed and actually could be a detriment. It could be a little bit harder to control by yourself um, than a shorter saw, say, you know, around 36 inches. Um, I have a 48-inch saw because that's what um, that's what was given to me. So, um, if you, if you didn't go back and watch the videos that I, um, I posted on that saw this, this month, um, my saw parts actually came to me from some friends up in Minnesota that were, were building these saws years ago. Um, I just had to add the wooden parts to it and the blade was already cut to length. So I made it, you know, it was a 48 inch blade. So I made the saw to fit that blade. Um, for a one-man saw, however, I would tend to go a little bit shorter. Um, it's going to make the saw a little bit lighter uh, and easier to wield by yourself and probably a little bit easier to control. And unless you're routinely sawing, um, resawing boards that are, you know, 18 to 24 inches wide, I don't think you're going to notice um, any problem or any downside to using a narrower 30 uh, or shorter i should say 36 inch frame saw um, if you do find yourself getting into wide stock more often and you want to saw a wide veneer in you know in boards that are 15 inches 18 inches 24 inches wide then i would say you're going to see some benefit from the longer 48 inch saw because the um the the problem with a shorter saw the 36 inch saw is that your teeth all of the teeth won't clear the board to clear the sawdust um, on the forward stroke if your saw is too short. So if you've got a 36 inch saw um, and you're trying to saw, you know, resaw a board that's 20 inches wide, um, some of those teeth won't completely clear the, uh, the kerf and you may have a little bit of drifting in there. So the longer saw kind of helps with that. And uh, it helps to more efficiently get rid of the sawdust inside the kerf. Uh, but again, if you're only working with 8 to 10 inch boards, 12 inch boards, 36 inch saw is going to suit you just fine. So the third question comes from Doug Kamen. He says, I have a question about repairing an antique wooden tool chest. Bought an antique tool chest for $25. It's in need of a good cleaning and refinishing, but also some repairs. Before I get started, I had a few questions. First, the top is a 22 inch wide single board that is completely split down the middle. The split is pretty dirty. The two halves fit pretty well together, but not perfectly. There's somewhere along the top of the boards where the crack is. I want to rejoin the two halves. What is the best way to clean up the interface and re-glue them together? How can I support the glue joint so that it is not split again and stays strong? What is the best way to strip the old finish off and refinish the wood? There are some remnants of green paint um, based on the story, the chest is close to or more than a hundred years old and made of pine. All right, so let's talk about the, the split first. 
So if, if you can close the crack, if you can put those two pieces together and close the crack up completely or just about completely with light clamp pressure, then I would say take a, uh, a brush. You can use very, I wouldn't use too stiff of a wire brush, but maybe, um, you know, an old toothbrush or a stiff nylon brush, um, you know, something that has a little bit of stiffness, it's going to get into the grain and clean out any grime and sand and dirt. Um, but not something that's going to gouge wood fibers out. Um, get some type of stiff nylon brush like that. And uh, just, a you know, you can get a pan of uh, a little container of uh, hot water and dish detergent, or you can use a mild solvent like mineral spirits um, or, or alcohol or acetone, something like that. Um, but the, the dish soap and water and hot water will probably work just fine. And just really clean that, that split real well. Um, and if everything can clamp back together cleanly, I would say get the uh, clean, it, clean it out with some dish soap and water, let it dry really well, and then put your glue on and clamp it back up. And, and you should be just fine. If there's too much damage for the the two halves of the board to, to fit back together really well, then you're going to have to address those edges. So what I would do would be to, um, to match plane them, take the two faces, um, you know, the, whether the inside face or the outside face of the board, however you want to do it and close them up like a book and then take your joiner plane and plane those that split edge until you've got a, a nice clean surface ready to add glue back to it. Um, if the split is pretty straight and there's not a whole lot of, of broken and gouged wood, you shouldn't have to remove a whole lot of wood in order to, to rejoint the edge and you should not um, lose too much width on that top. If you have to remove a lot of wood, then I would suggest scabbing in a new piece. Um, I would probably do it in the middle so I would plane those two edges and then let's say, you know, if you needed to add back a, a half inch thick piece of wood, you know, just glue it between those two pieces. Um, you know, sometimes in, when you're repairing stuff like this, sometimes you don't really have a choice. You've got to add some new wood in there. But, but I would see if you could plane it first and, uh, and not necessarily have to add any, any new wood. Just plane that joint flat and glue the two halves of the board back together and you should be in good shape. Um, and especially since it's a painted chest, if you're going to repaint it, um, you know, the glue, the glue line will be all but invisible in the, in the finished piece. Um, and if you don't have to scab in any new wood to, um, to make that, that panel wider, um, then even when it's, you know, even clear coated, it's, it'll probably look fine and the, and the glue line will probably just disappear. So, um, that's what I would do. Either clean it up and re-glue it as is. Um, if the wood is solid enough and uh, it closes up well enough, if not, plane it, glue it back together that way. As for stripping the old finish, um, there are a lot of thoughts on how you can do this. The first thing I would suggest, if you're going to repaint it, um, I would say try to clean it up with some, again, some dish detergent and hot water and give everything a good cleaning and scrubbing, you know, with, um, you know, maybe some steel wool and that and that dish detergent and water and see if you can just clean it all up real well first. Um, and if you're going to repaint it, 
I probably wouldn't strip it off. I would probably just try to remove all of the loose paint um, and, and anything that might flake off during the cleaning process and then paint right back over it. Um, if you're dead set on stripping it, um, there are a lot of chemical strippers that you can use. There are um, the quote unquote safer or greener ones that use, um, they're usually some type of, um, they call it, you know, uh, some type of citrus stripper or whatever. Um, it has a, a chemical in it called D-limeline, uh, and that's what actually does the stripping. Um, they work okay, uh, depending on the paint and how many layers are on there. You may have to do it a few times. Um, my favorite product is actually an aerosol stripper. Um, it, it, it comes in a can that looks like spray paint, but it's actually a paint. It's a, it's a stripper that you just spray on and it foams up and, uh, and removes everything. Um, but it does contain some pretty nasty chemicals. It's got, um, you know, some caustic chemicals in it. It's got, um, you know, some nasty organic solvents in it. So it's not the nicest stuff in the world to use, but it, it really, really works well. Uh, unfortunately, with a lot of the new regulations, you probably won't find it in most hardware stores anymore. Most places are getting rid of the harsher, um, the harsher stripping chemicals in favor of these more, uh, these greener strippers. So, uh, but the delimaline type strippers will work just as well. You may have to apply a couple coats and just follow the, the instructions to, uh, to remove the old finish, give, you know, clean it again after you use the stripper and, uh, and remove all the old finish, then clean everything really good following the instructions in the, on the, the can or bottle of stripper, uh, of stripper that you chose. Um, and then let everything dry really, really thoroughly. You might have to sand a, a few little things, uh, but let everything dry real thoroughly. And then, uh, you'll, should be able to put your new finish on once you're, uh, once you're done with that. So that's going to do it for our questions for this week. As always, if you have feedback, questions, or topic suggestions for the show, record a voice memo on your phone and email it to bob at brfinewoodworking.com. You can also leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123, or you can go to brfinewoodworking.com contact and fill out the contact form. So today's main topic is going to be a short discussion of varnish. And I say short because this is a topic that could really be discussed and debated for, for weeks on end. So rather than go into all the detailed minutiae about every different kind of finish and every different kind of varnish, today what I want to do is to give you my simple formula for very generally categorizing the most common finishes that we use. And then I'm going to talk just a little bit more in detail about one single kind of, of finish this week. Um, and that'll be oil-based varnish. Um, I may, you know, cover different types of, of finish in more detail in future podcasts, but after, you know, just kind of categorizing and talking generally about them this week, uh, I want to just go into a few more details on oil-based varnish. That's what we're going to talk about this week. So, but before we get into that, let's talk about the general types of finishes. Now, I'm going to start off by, by saying that I'm not going to mention or talk at all about the catalyzed finishes. And 
Um, if you don't know what a catalyzed finish is in general, think of it sort of like an epoxy. Um, catalyzed finishes are typically a two-part finish. Um, they're sometimes called catalyzed lacquers. They are sometimes called conversion varnish. Essentially, they're all the same thing. They're just, you add two chemicals together, they react, they form a hard coating. That's essentially what a catalyzed finish is. I'm not going to talk about those at all. Um, not today, not ever, because I don't use them. They're, most traditional woodworkers that I know don't use them. Um, they are really, they were finishes that were designed for the commercial industry, the, you know, furniture manufacturing, factory made furniture, um, you know, and they're not finishes that I, I care to learn anymore about. They're not finishes that I care to use. Um, they're essentially non-repairable finishes. So I'm not going to talk about, other than what I just said now, I'm not going to talk about the catalyzed finishes at all. What I want to talk about instead are, are the more traditional finishes that hobbyists tend to use. Very few hobbyists are using catalyzed finishes, so um, it wouldn't make a whole lot of sense to talk about them anyway. But there are a, a few finishes, a few different finish types that are fairly traditional um, and these are the types of finishes that are used by most hobbyists and I categorize them. So there are, there are essentially five different types of finish that we as hobbyists um, will use. The first one of those is a pure oil. Um, that could be pure linseed oil, pure tongue oil, pure walnut oil. Um, any one of those would be considered a drying oil and there is no other ingredient in it other than the oil itself. So that, that's the first category of finishes, pure oils. The second would be a pure wax. Could be beeswax, could be carnauba wax, could be a mix of those waxes, or, or it might be some of those waxes dissolved in some solvent to make them a little bit easier to apply. But after the solvent evaporates, you're left but with nothing but the wax, the pure wax itself on the surface. So that, that would be my second category of of finish would be a pure wax. You can also have blends of, of oils and waxes. I don't really consider those a category on their own because essentially it's just a mixture of a pure oil and a pure wax, maybe with a little bit of solvent in there. So, so I don't really have a, a separate category for the oil wax blends, but first two categories, pure oil, pure wax. Third category, shellac. Shellac you may also hear referred to as a spirit varnish. Um, this is essentially, you know, you have a, a solid, which is the shellac itself, which is a, the shellac is a secretion that is um, secreted by the female lac bug. It is then uh, collected, refined, and turned into what we know as shellac. Uh, it is, you can, it's dissolved in alcohol um, and applied to the wood and it, it dries. It does not cure. It dries through solvent evaporation. So that solvent goes back, you know, evaporates and you're, you're left again with a solid. My fourth category is lacquer and lacquer could almost be thought of as a synthetic shellac. 
Um, in fact, lacquer is very closely related to shellac, whereas shellac uses a naturally occurring solid, uh, the secretions from the lac bug. Lacquer uses a synthetic solid, typically nitrocellulose, that is then dissolved in a solvent. Shellac is dissolved in alcohol. Lacquer is dissolved in lacquer thinner, usually some combination of ketones. So um, similarly to shellac, lacquer dries, does not cure. It dries by solvent evaporation. You apply the lacquer typically by spraying um, and then the lacquer dries when, and becomes a solid again when all the solvent evaporates. After lacquer, we get into uh, the category, the final fifth category that I have known as the varnishes. And the varnishes, um, they make up the majority of the finishes that we see on the market today. The main difference between shellac, lacquer, and varnish is the way in which the finish cures. So whereas I, I mentioned before, shellac and lacquer dry, they do not cure. So they start out as a solid, you dissolve that solid in a solvent, either alcohol or lacquer thinner, you apply that finish to your wood, the solvent evaporates and the liquid then becomes a solvent. Uh, sorry, the liquid then becomes a solid. Now with shellac and lacquer, those solids can be redissolved simply by reapplying the solvent. So if you take a piece of wood that has shellac on it and you start to rub it down with pure alcohol, you're going to redissolve that shellac and pull the shellac off. Similarly, with a nitrocellulose lacquer, once that solid that finishes dry, if you take pure um, lacquer thinner and you start to rub down that surface with lacquer thinner, you're going to redissolve the lacquer and remove the lacquer. Varnishes are different. Varnishes don't dry, they cure. And what I mean by that is that they, they cannot be removed by the solvent that was used to carry them or thin them. So most varnishes, we'll, we'll talk about um, the different types in a, in a minute, but when we talk about oil varnishes, the thinner that's used is, is mineral spirits or, or paint thinner. Um, it's a, essentially a petroleum distillate. And that solvent helps to um, dissolve the, the resin, whatever the varnish resin is, and carry it onto the piece. But when that solvent evaporates, the solid goes through a curing process whereby it chemically cross-links, it chemically cures. So in other words, the, the molecules of that solid actually chemically bond together. So the finish doesn't simply dry by solvent evaporation. There's actual, actually a chemical reaction that goes on that cross-links those molecules and cures that finish. And as a result of that, once you have a dried varnish, you cannot simply put more solvent, more mineral spirits on that finish and redissolve that finish. In fact, if you put more mineral spirits on the surface of a, of a cured varnish finish, nothing is going to happen um, because it's a cured finish. It's a chemically cured finish. 
And this really comprises the largest category, the largest number of different products uh, in the finishes that we use. And I'll give you a few examples. Um, polyurethane, choose your brand, is a varnish. Minwax Antique Oil is a varnish. Watco Danish Oil is a varnish. Formby's Formby's Tongue Oil Finish, Watco Teak Oil, Minwax Tongue Oil Finish, General Finishes Armor Seal, General Finishes Seal-A-Cell, General Finishes Endurovar, Marine Spar Varnish, Minwax Polycrylic, Water-Based Poly, uh, Waterlocks. These are all varnishes. They may have different types of components in them. Some of them are oil-based varnishes. Some of them are water-based varnishes. But the fact of the matter is they are all varnish. They all cure chemically by cross-linking. The molecules chemically bond together. And once they are cured, these finishes cannot be redissolved. The primary difference between all these different finishes that I just mentioned, um, besides the misleading, um, misleading brand names and, and names that the companies use, the primary differences are the type of oil that's used, if it's an oil-based varnish, the type of resin that um, is used, and the type and amount of solvent that is in, and the ratio of those resins, oil of the, uh, the resin to the oil to the solvent. That's really the primary difference between all these different products. But when it when you boil it all down, all these different products are varnish regardless of the type of oil, the type of resin, the type of solvent, or their ratios that are used. Uh, varnishes can be oil or water-based. Um, I, I mentioned a couple examples in there. Minwax Polycrylic is a water-based varnish. General Finishes Endurovar is a water-based varnish. Um, on the oil-based side, you have Minwax Antique Oil, Waco Danish Oil, Formby's Tongue Oil Finish, um, General Finishes Armor Seal. Um, these are all oil-based finishes. The, the main thing to keep in mind with all these different varnishes is that even though they may have different ratios, there are three things that, are, that they're all going to have in common. Number one, they all include some kind of solid, uh, usually referred to as the resin. For example, uh, a urethane resin. Well, that would be the resin that's used in a polyurethane varnish. Um, an alkyd resin, that's the resin that is used in Minwax antique oil. Um, but all varnishes are going to contain some type of resin that is going to cure hard in the finished when, when the finish cures and that's what makes a varnish a varnish is that that solid resin that cures and cross-links as it cures that's what that's what really makes the varnish the second thing that all varnishes are going to have is some type of of carrier or, or something to soften the varnish itself many of these resins by themselves are extremely extremely hard and brittle so we add something to help to soften them, make them a little bit more flexible. Um, typically, that is some type of oil in, in your oil-based varnishes. So for example, Minwax Antique Oil uses an alkyd, alkyd resin varnish. Um, 
or an unalkyl resin rather. Minwax antique oil is also has uh, linseed oil in it, and that linseed oil mixes with the resin, and it helps to soften the resin a little bit, make it a little bit more pliable, a little bit more flexible, so it's not so brittle and doesn't just flake and crack and and flake off of your your wood. Um, certain finishes may use tongue oil. Um, you know, Formby's tongue oil finish and Minwax tongue oil finish have tongue oil in the name. Um, I haven't looked at the MSDS's or material safety data sheet recently on either one of those products, but I know those that the rules around what's included in those MSDS's have changed over the years too. And I don't know if it even tells you anymore what type of oil that they use, but um, tongue oil can be used in a varnish as well to, um, to soften that resin. The ratio of resin to oil is going to determine whether we have what is known as a short oil varnish or a long oil varnish. Long oil varnishes have a greater, um, greater ratio or greater proportion of oil in them. So something like a marine spar varnish, which tends to dry very soft, has a greater ratio of oil, has a, has a much larger percentage of oil in it than something like Minwax Antique Oil, which has a smaller pr proportion of oil, so the finish itself dries much harder. In general, the harder a finish dries, the less oil there is in the ratio, the mix. The softer the finish dries, the more oil there will be in the mix. Um, so again, those are two things to, that are going to be in the oil-based varnish, is going to be the oil to help soften the resin and the resin itself. Uh, more oil, softer finish, less oil, harder finish. And then the third thing that these um, finishes are going to have is a solvent. And that's something to keep the um, keep the finish in the liquid state in the absence of, of air. So inside the container, if you were to remove all the solvent, you'd just basically have a, a goopy mess um, that would eventually just harden and you wouldn't be able to do anything with it. So the solvent is added to thin everything out and allow you to apply it and allow, and allow the finish to flow. Once the solvent all evaporates off, then the cross-linking process can begin and the finish begins to cure. So resin, oil, solvent. Essentially, those are the three ingredients in an oil-based varnish. The chemistry of water-based varnishes is quite a bit more complex, so I don't really want to get into it. I don't have a great understanding of it myself, um, but just know that essentially what you have is a solvent, um, a carrier or, or, or a, a flexing agent, um, and a resin. There is still some type of resin in there, and they tend to cure the same way as an oil-based varnish. It's just that the the system is a little bit different, but you're still going to get this chemical cross-linking or chemical bonding of the different molecules within the finish that will then create a hard, dry finish that cannot be redissolved by the solvent that was originally in the finish. Now, some of these finishes may also have flattening agents added. So a varnish without anything else added is typically going to be quite glossy. Um, if you look at a gloss polyurethane or a lacquer or a shellac, 
the finish tends to be very, very shiny, very glossy. That is also the hardest state or the hardest form of the finish is a gloss. A lot of people don't like that super high gloss. Traditionally, the solution to a very high gloss finish was to rub it out. So you get the the finish up to, you know, you apply the finish, you get it nice and dry, and it's really, really shiny and really glossy. If you want to knock it back down to a satin sheen or a matte sheen, you could take some steel wool uh, with a little bit of lubricant, maybe some wax, maybe some oil, and you could rub and abrade that finish to get it to the sheen that you wanted it. If you wanted a higher sheen, you can maybe use some pumice or rotten stone or some automotive polish, and you could then bring that hard glossy finish to the sheen that you wanted these days um, in order to make things easier for us a lot of the finish manufacturers will add flattening agents to their finishes um, these agents do a couple of different things usually it's some type of silica or silicone um, sand essentially um, and they will add differing amounts of that flattening agent depending on the sheen that you're after. And if you want a satin sheen, for example, they'll add a certain amount of silica or whatever flattening agent that they're using. And what that does in the final finish is it tends to break up the light reflection so that the finish itself doesn't look so glossy. But it also means that usually the finish is a little bit less clear as well. Um, but you get the same basic, um, the, the, the same basic look that you get when you rub that finish down and create scratches in the surface that tend to do the same thing, which is to change the way the light reflects or does not reflect off the surface. And that's where that satin sheen or, or matte sheen comes from. Um, is the act of rubbing the finish out and scratching the surface um, or adding these flattening agents. The difference with the flattening agents is they tend to make the finish a little bit softer because they don't bond with the other chemicals, the other molecules in the finish. They just kind of suspend there. So in fact, they actually prevent some of that cross-linking between the molecules. Um, so they, the flattening agents do tend to make a finish a little bit softer than a high gloss finish that's been rubbed out because that high gloss finish doesn't have that additional um, silica or flattening agent in there that gets between the molecules of the finish. So, so uh, flatter or semi-gloss or satin type finishes do tend to be a little bit softer than a high gloss finish. Um, in terms of application of these finishes, there are lots of different ways. What I have found for Oil-based varnishes, they're going to be best applied either with a brush or wiped on. Um, you make your own wiping varnish. A lot of these are wiping varnishes, Minmax Antique Oil, Waco Danish Oil. They're all essentially varnishes that have had a very high amount of solvent added to make them thin enough to simply wipe on with a rag. You can make your own wiping varnish or wipe on poly or whatever you want to call it by taking the regular stuff that hasn't been thinned and adding your own solvent to get it to the consistency that you like for wiping it on. Um, I tend to like to um, to wipe on my varnish. I think I get a better finish that way. But some people would prefer to brush it, and that's fine too. Oils do not tend to spray well, so I would recommend not trying to spray oil-based finishes. 
they really do uh, tend to make a mess of, of spray guns and they can be kind of a hassle to clean up. Water-based varnishes, on the other hand, tend to be best applied by spraying. Um, they can be applied by brushing um, and most have instructions on how to do that. Um, I have not had a lot of good luck getting a really nice water-based finish by brushing. Um, and since I don't own spray equipment, I therefore tend to avoid using water-based uh, water finishes. Uh, my preference is for shellac or, or, or oil-based finishes. But um, if you are going to go the water-based finish route, you may want to consider investing in some spray equipment because the, you do get the best finish with a water-based finish by spraying. So hopefully um, that has helped you to, to understand a little bit more about varnishes. I know it was kind of quick and kind of high level, um, but I like to kind of keep it that way because I find that we tend to get a little overcomplicated with all these different finishes and the names that these companies give their finishes certainly doesn't help. But if you, if you remember the five categories that I mentioned uh, uh, at the beginning of the segment, um, pure oil, pure wax, shellac, lacquer, varnish. And for the most part, every finish that you run into is going to fall into one of those five categories. The majority of finishes are predominantly some type of varnish. So if you keep that in mind, uh, I think your your finishing process could be a lot simpler and maybe take a lot of the confusion out of it um, when you understand that for the most part, when you walk into your home center or your woodworking uh, supplier, uh, for the most part, most of the finishes that you're looking at on that shelf are all essentially the same thing. They're just a varnish uh, with different ratios of oil, solvent, and solid. Uh, so if you keep that in mind, you uh, I think you'll be a lot less confused when it comes to your finishing. So that's going to do it for this week's show. As always, I want to thank you all for joining me and allowing me to do this. I am extremely grateful for all the support you've all provided. As a reminder, please send in your feedback, questions, and topic suggestions because this show depends upon your input and participation for its content. Just record a voice memo on your phone and email it to bob at brfinewoodworking.com. You can also leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123, or you can use the contact form on the website at brfinewoodworking.com contact. If you're looking for the show notes for today's episode, you can find them on my website at brfinewoodworking.com htt047. In the show notes, you can find any links that I referred to in today's show, and you can also find links to follow me on all my social media accounts. Finally, if you'd like to support the show, you can become a supporter on Patreon and get your questions answered in the monthly Q&A video, or you can make a one-time donation through PayPal. And you'll find links to do so in the show notes and at brfindwoodworking.com support. So thank you again for listening, and until next time, stay sharp, everybody.